Over my dead body. Over my dead body. Over my dead body. Welcome to Over My Dead Body, my podcast about a new dad. I'm your host, Alex Liddington-Cox. I don't have a lot of news for you this week. Um, I did try to get down and see some friends of mine that live on the opposite side of the city. And to cut a long story short, that ended up meaning that our kid was in the car for, I think it was about three and a half hours in one day. And she could kind of do that in the first few months of her life. Um, you know, she was a bit of a potato that we could just kind of chuck in the back of the car and take anywhere. And she's starting to be able to assert herself and say, no, I don't want to sit here for that long. So that ended up being a mistake. Now, last week we talked about what does it feel like becoming a father? And I only told you really the smallest part of the story, that moment where you actually become a father. But the process of becoming a father is much longer and much more varied than the birth, which feels like doing a bunch of ecstasy pills. So I'll take you back to the start. And while I would maintain that um, all men would feel something similar when they become a father, uh, the lead up to it is going to be a very subjective experience. So this is mine. For me, from the beginning, it felt very natural. I come from a family of um, three kids. I've got two sisters and we all love our dad very much. Uh, We think he's a good dad. Uh, we think it took him a while to kind of get it down, probably about 12 years before he really started to get particularly good at it. He was, um, he was a good dad for the first 12 years, but he was a, he has been a tremendous father since then, uh, and a very progressive father. Um, and he's been a great role model for me. You know, when you come from a pretty happy family and I'm not saying that my family doesn't have issues, like every family does. Um, that drive you nuts. But like, that was just, you know, I'd be at home with my family. I'm like, this is pretty fun. I think that, you know, if I get the opportunity, I would like to do this as well. And it really is that simple. I wouldn't pretend to know, but I imagine that the children of divorce would feel something very different. And then it felt lonely. My partner Once we fell in love, I knew this is the girl for me. Regardless of what happens, I am sticking with this girl. She made it pretty clear in the beginning that she didn't want kids. And I told her that, you know, I wanted a good relationship more than I wanted children. I didn't want children just for the sake of it. Because I had seen, you know, you you grow up with kids whose parents clearly, kids were the end goal and they didn't build their relationship well enough. And I just didn't want that. I knew that I wanted a relationship more than I wanted children. So we, we left the conversation at that for a, a number of years. And it was a very lonely feeling, you know, just sort of making peace with the idea that you might not have kids. I knew there was a might because so many people that have gone before you tell you that yeah, you say you're not going to have kids and then you do. So I always thought there was a chance, but I made peace with the idea that, that we weren't having children. And the sliding doors question, I guess, would be, um, or would you have, like, can you really say that you would have stayed in the relationship if you didn't have kids? Yeah, I can say that I would have. Yeah, my partner's the girl for me. And we have a lot of fun together. And we have had a lot of fun together. And I think that that's where the change of mind 
on her part came from. Maybe I can get her on the podcast to talk about this, but she's told me that she doesn't want to. But we were just kind of like, this is fun. We have fun. You know, let's franchise this shit. <laughs> let's get someone else into it. Um, but yeah, had we not had kids, um, I still think we would have had a great life together. And then she told me that she was open to it. And there was, was a bit of disbelief because she told me for so many years and I understood her reasons as to why she didn't want to have kids that when we were started trying for kids, I was like, oh, this, oh, this isn't happening. There's no way this, this, this is not going to, what are we doing? It really was a state of disbelief. You know, I can't believe we're actually doing this. And you don't really believe it's going to happen because of that. And then when she, I came home one day from the gym and there was a pregnancy test sitting on the counter and it was positive. And it took me a good 10 minutes to twig that's actually what it meant. I mean, she was like, what, what else do you think it meant? And I was just like, well, there are two blue lines, but one of them's really a shitty blue line. So surely that's a false positive? No, that was, yeah, she was pregnant. And it was difficult. There was disbelief for other reasons because we have some friends that had had trouble having children. The whole idea of uh, having children immediately, you know, the moment you turn 30, it becomes more difficult. Like it's, it's not. The messaging from the medical community has changed. But we, we felt some time pressure because we knew some friends that had had trouble having children after they turned 30. And this was, you know, third month of trying. It was incredibly quick. And we were very lucky. We just, we just weren't expecting it. Like we were drunk at the time of conception, very drunk up at Mount Hotham after the snow season. Just, yeah, unexpected. So disbelief. I remember feeling absolutely paralyzed and completely in shock when that pregnancy test was sitting on the counter. The next nine months or so, it's kind of like being permanently stuck in an airport terminal. There's a feeling of immense anticipation, of change, of transition. When you go traveling, you read about your destination. When you have children, it's very easy to read about the flight. So we did a lot of reading about pregnancy, not about having kids. And so it really is like reading an instruction manual to a 737 when you're going on a holiday to Japan. Guilt is another feeling that I felt. In this instance, because I could drink and she couldn't. And I remember like in the first trimester, I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to drink as much as I used to because I would primarily drink with my partner. I'll stop calling her my partner. Let's call her Rachel. That's what her name is. I would primarily drink with her and I can't drink with her now. So my drinking definitely went down. It stayed down for the second semester and for the second semester, for the second trimester and the third trimester it went up again. Um, I was just like, fuck it. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen after this. So I may as well enjoy myself. And she definitely gave her blessing for that. I also felt a sense of guilt. Something a lot of guys from this generation do because we are keenly aware of not just the physical impact that having a child has on a woman, but the career impact that it has. And it was just kind of, you know, it really dawns on you what an undertaking it is and the professional risk that your partner has taken to have kids with you. 
That's a very humbling feeling. Protective. We started talking to doctors about, you know, we live in Brunswick. It has one of the lowest immunization rates in the country. Um, my parents have previously expressed some skepticism towards immunization. I wasn't immunized as a child, so I had to catch up afterwards. And so we were fumbling our way through putting immunization policies in place. And it, we adopted a very protective mindset, which actually didn't serve us all too well, as it turns out. We'll revisit that at some stage. But to cut a long story short, we said, like, unless you've had these jabs, you don't get to see the kid more than twice in the first six weeks. And then we got some pushback from both sides of the family, like both parents, which took us by surprise. And then we had to kind of reverse engineer a policy to kind of find a middle ground. But at the end of the day, my parents ended up not being able to see our kid for the first six weeks. And um, then we found out that we got some of that advice from a, from a doctor that was a little bit shitty. You know, I think in hindsight, we probably would have stuck to the policy that we took, but it was really difficult. And that we were definitely feeling before the birth, like it already kind of set a distance between me and my parents, um, us and my parents, us, including the as yet unborn child. Yeah, that was hard. It was very isolating. And I also felt isolated from the child itself because, you know, it's, it's not in my body. You know, Rachel would put my hand on her stomach when it was kicking. And a lot of the time I'd just be sitting there waiting and she was just a very uncooperative baby. Yeah, just a lot of the time she wasn't kicking. And so I, I just kind of ran out of patience and then I feel shitty. I'm like, how are you running out of patience sitting there waiting for your baby to kick? Your partner's carrying it, but there is just this distance between you and the kid that the mum doesn't necessarily feel all that much. She might feel a different one. Like, I can't believe something's growing inside of me. Like, what the fuck are you? What the fuck are you? But yeah, I just remember feeling like just this distance to the kid compared to Rachel. Touched and blessed. Um, my sister designed um, the baby's bedroom. And my whole family came around to decorate it, including my dad, and it really wouldn't be his thing. That felt just so amazing uh, to have the family come around and create the space that your kid is going to be in. And the room is more or less done. We've had to move a few things around, but, you know, piece by piece, the room is exactly the same. Um, as my sister designed it, oh, that, that just felt great. And you do feel the relationships with your family changing. You know, you start to think like, what sort of sacrifices am I going to make for my child that my parents have made for me? I started asking my younger sister questions because she's had a kid. She's seven years my junior and she's already had a kid. Um, so I started going to her almost like she was a big sister, uh, which was a lovely flip of the relationship that we've had for 25 odd years. Muted. My libido went down really drastically. And this will be a subject of a podcast because no one prepared me for that. Dudes don't talk about that. And it felt hormonal. It didn't feel physiological. Like I was still keeping pretty fit. Um, I was actually probably fitter during the pregnancy that I've been in the last 10 years. Yeah, something fucked up was going on in my body or my head. Yeah, I don't really know what to make of it. But that definitely happened. And that definitely threw me a lot. 
since the birth it's all gone back to normal which is something else that we can talk about at a later date community you feel a sense of community we went to some birthing classes and they're allocated based on location if you live in this area you go to this maternal health care center and you are put in a class with these people because they also live near you we had this one couple there and you know the there was like a bit of an ask me anything section and she puts up her hand and goes, um, uh, I want to ask about, uh, I can't even remember the term because I've just blocked it out so much. Placenta harvesting. That's the one. Yeah. I tend to not have that term holstered, ready to go in a conversation. <laughs> and we just kind of sit up and we're just like, really? That's right. We do live in Brunswick. Sure. We just start looking around and going like, I wonder which people, which parents we're going to be hanging out with. When someone asks a comment like that, you're just like, how much are we going to have in common? Anyway, it turns out we're hanging out with some parents locally and they're all pretty cool. We're not hanging out with that person. Haven't seen them since. Angry. Any perceived shortfall in care for your partner when you're a dude makes you angry. And as it turns out, my partner's care was pretty shit. Our doctor dumped her. And we had all of these appointments, you know, booked in advance. Like, here's your 38-week appointment, 39-week appointment, 40-week appointment, or whatever the numbers were. And we were doing shared care. So we had these appointments booked with a local family doctor, not with the hospital. There are other appointments that you do on top of the, on top of the you know, the family doctor surgery, whatever they call it. But we went with this, like this doctor talked us into doing this because she's just like, oh, she's way more relaxed to do it this way. Um, and we liked her at the time. So we went for the shared care option. And then we just found out like, I think it was the week of like when her appointments are really starting to ramp up. Oh no, that doctor's left and your appointments are canceled. We have another doctor available, but they won't be able to make your 38 or 39 week appointment. Like they just didn't have someone to cover it we weren't told that any of this happened and we are still none the wiser as to who fucked up, whether or not it was the doctor surgery or that doctor herself. I've reached out to both asking for an explanation. I'm still waiting for one. But yeah, at the time, very angry. Yeah, that anger's still there. Took a break because we had a kid and you have to focus on that. But yeah, that anger's coming back. I'll find out who fucked that up. Finally, scared. Very scared. Rachel had high blood pressure, which is associated with preeclampsia, which can be fatal for the kid and the mother. So once the hospital picked that up belatedly because our doctor's appointments had been cancelled, once they picked that up, they're like, yeah, Rachel, you're not getting out of here. You will probably not be leaving until you have a baby. And so, you know, she was just suddenly in hospital. And I remember having one night to myself back at the apartment going like, wow, this is happening. And because there's a question over, you know, my partner's health, you kind of feel like you're on the back foot a little bit. You're already kind of off balance. So you feel scared, you feel powerless, um, but you're also busy because you're running around, um, grabbing things, driving them to the hospital, calling people, messaging family, like updating them. But ultimately you feel absolutely useless. 
And any woman that's been through induction knows that it fucking sucks because that's what happened. They had to induce her and it fucking sucked. And it ended in an emergency C-section, which was everything had kind of gone pear-shaped, but the doctors reassure you when it's emergency C-section that, well, this is the easy way out. And because Rachel had been in such discomfort, I was just like a little bit relieved that they're doing this. But there was a moment where it was like 4.30 in the morning and one of the nurses just said, we're just going to get everything ready in theatre. Um, we're not going to start without you. They're really cool about it. But you just need to wait here. And so I was waiting in a hallway in the hospital and there was no one else there. I couldn't hear a thing. It was just that sort of humming noise of fluorescent lights. And, you know, Rachel's just been wheeled away, seriously fucked up. Like she had so many drugs going through her system, painkillers, drugs to get her blood pressure down, drugs to stop the labor because they were trying to get our baby's heart rate up because it had dipped rather worryingly. So she's completely out of it and you feel really alone and your mind starts to think some pretty awful things. Most of your brain knows that that's not going to happen, but when there's nothing else going on around you, you get an opportunity to dwell in that possibility that you're going to lose both of them. And it's, I don't have a word to describe it, but it's very lonely. Turns out it all went well. And then the baby's born. Then you feel a great sense of relief. Um, our baby passed her APGAR scores, which are these tests that you do on their basic senses in the immediate aftermath of birth. And I think she got a perfect score on both. I think she got a perfect score on one shy of a perfect score. Um, so then there's relief. And then that's when all the drug feelings that I was talking about last week start kicking in. So there you go. That's what the lead up's like. Well, that's what it was like for me at least. So that's episode two. Hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye.